Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Ida Vok in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday the 23rd of July. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Well, 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 Ido, you are back on the pod. How are you? How is, how is Berlin? And what from the past week do you think will go down in history or that you, you know, will not go down in history, but you'd like to mention it to me now? I think for my moment of the week, I'm going to pick the really horrific flooding in China. So in the central province of Henan, in particular, the capital Zhengzhou, there's been torrential rain, I think something like a, a year's worth in a few days, which has resulted in torrents of water in the city's streets, flooded subway systems, and just kind of really horrific, unbelievably violent scenes. I think what's most interesting about this is a lot of, not all, but a lot of natural disasters kind of tend to happen outside of cities and cities, generally speaking, tend to be exempt from some of the more sort of extreme weather events that we've seen in recent years. So for instance, recently there was also quite bad flooding in Germany, but that was largely in rural areas. But of course, as climate change gets worse in these kind of extreme weather events become more frequent, cities, of course, will will not be spared that. And in fact, in many ways, they're uniquely vulnerable. So obviously, built up areas tend to absorb heat quite well and are not very good at absorbing water. So they're vulnerable to extreme heat and also extreme flooding. And some of the kind of most emblematic images of the flooding in Henan was the infrastructure, which is associated with with cities in particular, subway systems, flooded, you know, passengers in flooded metro cars, all that sort of thing, which means that we might see much more of cities being quite severely affected by climate change. I think this is likely the beginning rather than the end. And what's your moment of the week? First of all, I think you're completely correct that this is, it's not the beginning, this has been happening before, but it's its its certainly not the end. And actually on the East Coast this week, there was like haze and smog in the air from fires on the opposite coast of the country. And like, it's the US, it's not a, it's not a small country, but that's not my moment of the week. My moment of the week is, so Ben and Jerry's ice cream, for those of you who, who missed the story, Ben and Jerry's ice cream decided that they were not going to continue to sell their product in the occupied territories, but said, we will figure out a way to continue to sell in Israel proper. This decision was met with 
just an outpouring of extreme sentiment for many people, including the foreign minister of Israel, Lapid, came out and strongly condemned this and said that he was going to ask American states that have anti boycott divestment sanctions laws to to act on this. The Anti-Defamation League said that this played into behavior that undermines Israel. What I find really interesting about this more than like the debate over which frozen dairy treats are sold where is that I think there's a line of thinking, particularly in mainstream democratic American quarters, that sort of separates the occupation from Israel, right? And it's like, well, we support Israel but the occupation is so terrible. And I think what you have seen this week is that Israeli leaders themselves have have collapsed the distinction between the two, right? Because this is not a boycott of selling in Israel. Rather, it's about the occupation. And that, that distinction was not drawn by the foreign minister, by the president, by many people. So that uh, was one from this past week. And it is one that we will continue to keep an eye on. Uh, not Ben and Jerry specifically, but the conversation around Israel. With that, I think it's time to bring in our guest. We are delighted because this week we have Alpa Shah. She is the professor of anthropology at the London School of Economics. And her prize-winning book, Night March, A Journey into India's Nakshal Heartlands, was shortlisted for the Orwell Prize in 2019. She also, just as importantly, is the author of a new statesman piece up recently called How Father Stan Swami's Custodial Murder is Sparking New Demands for Justice in India. Alpa, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Emily. It's wonderful to be here. It's a pleasure. No, we're, we're, as I said, delighted to have you on. Now, there is so much we want to talk about, but I think first we will speak about sort of the, the, the immediate subject of your piece and then zoom out a bit. So for, for listeners who are not familiar, who is Father Stan Swami and, and how did he die? Father Stan Swami is an extraordinary man. He's an 84-year-old Jesuit priest when he died. He died in custody. He'd been jailed for about 10 months before in a Mumbai jail. He was in jail on charges of terrorism, being charged as a Maoist, as a Naxalite revolutionary in, in India, as armed revolutionaries who have been working in the country underground, banned for more than 50 years. For many of those who knew him and who knew his work, he is hailed now especially as a, as as an indigenous rights activist, somebody who had spent devoted the last at least thirty years, I, I think more, are working for the rights of indigenous people in India. They're called Adivasis. They make up eighty-four eighty-four million people in in India, and they are some of the poorest people in the country. Some of those who have been the most deprived, the most exploited, and whose lives and livelihoods are really, really being undermined with the form of neoliberal capitalist growth that the country is undertaking right now. And Father Stan. Swami was basically one of the people who stood up for them, who spoke out against the horrors going on in parts of the country that we never hear about in the international news. And yeah, he had been an indigenous rights advocate for for all these years, and he was put in prison as as on, on charges of terrorism. He died. He died. He had Parkinson's disease. He caught, caught COVID. He wasn't given bail. There's no trial against him. There had been no trial against him begun. He's just on, on you know, and, and it's uh, he says, and many other people say that the charges against him and other people who have been incarcerated in in this uh, one big case uh, that he was he's been put in jail in the Bhima Koregaon case the evidence that has been used against 
against them has was planted on some of their computers. A Massachusetts-based consultancy in the US has revealed that, you know, the evidence that was planted on their computers was planted on their computers. Activists, intellectuals, human rights advocates, lawyers, you know, everybody is up in arms against the death of Father Stan Swami. They're calling it a custodial murder, a murder in which, you know, the, the, the judiciary, the courts, the state has been complicit in. And he's been kind of resurrected as a martyr for human rights internationally. Before we move on, I just want to ask you, because you said he was facing terrorism charges. And I think just in case anyone listening to this is, has the reaction of like, oh, well, if he was facing terrorism charges, that means he must have done something wrong. Can you speak a bit about the way in which terrorism charges and anti-terror laws are used in India? Yeah, well, India has these kind of horrific uh, laws. There's, you know, there's sedition laws, which are, come from colonial times. There's also these laws called the Unlawful Activities Prevention Act, uh, UAPA, they're called for short. And these laws are, are so horrific that you can basically be accused of being a terrorist under these laws, and you can be put in jail without any trial beginning. So you're just assumed to be guilty if you're if you're put in jail under these laws until and, and you know so the, and these trials often just don't don't start for years uh, people will languish in jail for you know sometimes it can be decades before the trials even begin and then the conviction rates are actually really 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 low i read something like 2% somewhere but they're basically used as a way of silencing any form of dissent against the regimes in power so people like stan swami you know middle class activists they were really asking uncomfortable questions of what is happening in India right now. They were highlighting all kinds of human rights abuses. In Stan's case, actually, it's really interesting because he was looking at how more, you know, several thousand indigenous people, Adivasis, mainly illiterate, extremely poor, had all been put in prison under anti-terror laws. So all these Adivasis had been jailed in the states of Jharkhand, Chhattisgarh, Orissa, these are all these states in the middle of India, forested states with huge mineral resources, but extremely poor people. They had all, all these other, all these indigenous people had been put in jail on, 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 in, under anti-terror laws, the same laws that Stan was actually fighting himself. He was actually taking the Jharkhand state, this is a state in India, he was taking the Jharkhand state to court to basically, you know, release these prisoners. And so they, they, they slapped the same laws that he was challenging for indigenous people against him in order to, you know, silence him and silence the work that he was doing. So we've spoken about about him as a kind of activist. Obviously, the name Father Stan Swami, he was a Christian. And I was just wondering if you could talk a bit more about that. We hear a lot about conflict between Hindus and Muslims in India. Um, Obviously, India is a very large, largely majority Hindu nation, and it has some quite sort of well-documented interreligious conflict, particularly with its Muslim minority, but we hear rather less about Indian Christians. And I was wondering if you could talk about how his Christianity influenced his work and perhaps his relationship with the government. 
Father Stan Swami, he was a Jesuit. There's a long tradition of Christianity in India, especially the church operating, especially amongst marginalized communities like the indigenous people or the Dalits, you know, uh, who were called untouchables in the past. So there's been a whole load of work done by by missionaries for the upliftment, uh, you know, as they would call it, for of these communities. And Christianity has been quite a force in, in both, you know, working on behalf of poor but also converting the poor Stan Swami was he kind of he parted with some of his other Jesuit friends the people he worked with in the Jesuit hierarchy you know there's a whole tradition of Jesuits who were working in Latin America who were very revolutionary who were very working you know challenging the state challenging oppressive regimes and he was very influenced by by this kind of liberation theology and the liberation of the poor using his Christianity to empower Adivasis in particular that because that's where he he ended ended up working and he was in in some ways like much more radical than some of some of you know some of the other Jesuits working working in the area who were doing you know relief work charitable work for the poor you know Father Stan Swami had this idea that you couldn't only do relief work you couldn't only alleviate poverty you had to understand why it existed and if you understood that then you know that led you to challenging mining corporations that led you to challenging why land was being acquired why indigenous people were being dispossessed of their land for corporations for multinational corporations and why the state was complicit and how anti-terror laws were being used by the state to clear the land off indigenous people. And so Father Stan Swami was really, you know, he saw he was a Jesuit, he saw himself as a Jesuit, but for him, he saw himself as, you know, following the tradition or the ideas of a particular history of, of Christianity, which used Jesus, used Christianity for radical purposes, for not only the upliftment of, of poor people, but also challenging the kind of structures of of power you know he was very kind of marxian uh, inspired that's really interesting you mentioned the court case regarding the bima koreagon i hope i'm not butchering that uh, violence i was wondering if you could talk a bit more about that over the last two years there has been a big uproar in india because there's been a kind of new targeting of intellectuals, human rights activists, lawyers, poets, artists that didn't exist in the same way before. What's happened is in 2018, there was this Dalit, uh, India's Untouchables, gather in this village on the banks of the river Bhima every year to celebrate Dalit victory against upper caste regimes. Ironically, there were actually soldiers in the British army when they were fighting these upper caste regimes. They threw over these upper caste regimes. And this was like 200 years ago. And in 2018, they were celebrating this Dalit victory, which they do every year on New Year's Day. And some kind of violence broke out. And then it was claimed and, and, and one person died. And you know, so there was this mob that entered the celebration of Dalit pride and Dalit solidarity. And they came in with saffron frags, which is of the ruling Hindu nationalist parties. They started th- throwing, throwing stones at people and setting cars on fire. And one person died in this, in this violence. 
And in the aftermath of this violence, the police uh, in the area claimed that this violence had been instigated by a set of intellectuals and human rights activists. And they raided houses of intellectuals and human rights activists, lawyers all over the country. In June, they put in prison five as alleged. Uh, they said that they were Maoists and that they had inspired, they had instigated this violence. And then in August, they raided a further set of people and in prison of which Stan Swami was one. And they imprisoned several at the time. And this is not just, you know, in one part of the country. It's all over happening in Mumbai and in, in the West, in Calcutta, in the South, in Hyderabad, in Delhi, in the North, and, you know, all, all simultaneously. Over the course of the next two years, they put 16 people, including Stan Swami, in prison. And they claimed that they were all Maoists and that they were all involved in a plot to kill the prime minister and that they had instigated this violence in Bhima Koregao in January 2018. These many of these people, like Stan, said, you know, we weren't anywhere near the place at the time. There's no evidence that they were. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, they they said uh, 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 what's happened afterwards is that it's been revealed that evidence these evidence there was there were these letters that were planted on 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 the computer of at least two of the accused. All of these these people were put in prison under anti-terror laws. No trials have begun. They're all in prison apart from Stan, who is now dead, and one Barbara, who has been who is very critic. He's also over eighty and he's very critically ill. Um, and as in, in in hospital. So if you look at these people, what's it's really fascinating because you have people like Stan, who was you know a fighting for indigenous rights. You have a Dalit intellectual who is probably the f- most well known Dalit intellectual, the most important Dalit intellectual in India, Anantel Tumde, who has spent his whole life fighting for the rights of untouchables. You know, previously called untouchables, Dalit people in, in India. You have one of the foremost labor lawyers who has spent her life fighting for the rights of informal labor you know so most of most of the indian labor force is completely precarious uh, 97% and it's it, the unions don't fight for them but this woman sudha bhardwaj her name is she she grown up in cambridge england here you know and her parents were professors but she had devoted her life to fighting for the rights of poor laborers they put her in prison. They put uh, Gautam Navlaka, who has been a very forceful and vocal advocate of Kashmir uh, and Kashmir's uh, autonomy. Uh, and they so they put him in prison. And so they put all these people in prison who have been fighting key battles of democratization within India. Almost as a way, it seems like, you know, it's so under these laws, which are, you know, you just they'll just be in prison now <laughs> forever and ever. And, you know, they're going to die there like Stan did. And, uh, uh, and it's almost like it's a, it's a warning to anybody, right? It's a way of silencing any critique, right? You just, if you put one of these people in prison, it's like, it's just like you go to places like Jarkhand has such fear, you know, nobody, everybody's afraid of speaking out. You think your phones are tapped, your emails tapped, everything's tapped. So it's a, it's, it's a way of generating terror. Well, actually, as we saw this week, the paranoia that your phones are tapped, yes, particularly in India, is actually not paranoia. It's actually a widespread phenomenon. I wanted to to sort of follow up on one thing that you that you said in there, which is you know you mentioned that in this case they were accused of of working on the behalf of of Maoist insurgents or naturalites, and 
I don't mean to give any credibility or legitimacy to that claim, but one thing that I found, you, you know, you say this right at the beginning of your book, Night March, is that there there is a lot of overlap between Naxalites and the Adabasi. Could you speak a bit about why that is? What I'm not suggesting is, oh, because there's a lot of overlap, that means that, yes, these intellectuals are Naxalites. That's not what I'm saying. But I, I, I would like to ask, you know, why there's this close connection between the indigenous people and and the Maoist Movement. Absolutely. Really important question. This movement, which is a communist movement, Marxist-Leninist, Maoist-inspired, began you know, way back in the 1960s in India, and it's faced various kind of stages of state repression, but it, somehow it's always kind of, you know, survived and come back. And it's very, you know, it's highly organized. These are underground, banned, armed revolutionaries. But their aim has been this very very Maoist inspired. So they, their aim has been to create bases in the countryside to eventually fight a protracted people's war, which will take over the cities. And then, you know, they hope to create this better, more communist world. It's a very kind of old fashioned idea of, you know, stages development to a, a communist utopia that they want to create. And these guys, the, the leaders of these movements are mainly high caste, well-to-do intellectuals who have basically separated off from their families, years and years ago and they've gone and lived underground and in the various phases of state repression that they faced you know in in the 1980s they were in the plains agricultural plains of India and then there was nowhere to hide there was you know that they could only hide when the wheat was tall or the paddy was tall and so they started to think oh now what do we do to survive and so they looked at their Che Guevara and they looked at their Mao and they thought okay, we, we, we need to find the forests and the hills. And so they retreated into the middle of central and eastern India, which are these hilly forested terrains. And they ended up there by, by you know, just trying to find better guerrilla terrain. And they didn't know much about the people who had like lived in those areas, who lived in those areas. And those areas actually are inhabited by India's indigenous people. It's Adivasis. These are people who over the centuries have many kind of retreated from the agricultural plains of, very in, of, of India, have tried to create lives that are relatively autonomous from the rest of Indian society. You know, these Naxalites went into these forests and they started to, you know, they, they wanted to make their strongholds there. And so inevitably they came across the indigenous people or the indigenous people had to, had to you know, were confronted by them. And they were... The indigenous people have been very skeptical of, you know, outsiders because they had faced such oppression in the past. You know, these are areas which are rich in mineral resources, rich in timber. So the British colonial state had been very interested in these areas. And they'd taken, you know, taken away lots of timber to build our military ships and our railway lines back here in England. And they'd, you know, a lot of minerals in these areas. So they'd been, you know, 40% of India's, India's uh, untapped mineral reserves lie in these lands. So there's always been a kind of mining interest, or always a kind of very extractive interest and nothing ever given back to the population. But these Maoists, because they were kind of, you know, revolutionaries, communists, they lived not only dreamt of a communist utopia, but they were also practiced everyday communism. They ended up treating the indigenous people with much more respect and sympathy and empathy than other outsiders had. And so inevitably, you know, they, they were able to live in those forests and over time, Many indigenous people spent, you know, many Adivasi spent 
oh, six months with them in their guerrilla armies, just as they would six months in a brick factory in, in another state and six months back at home. And lots of people, because I lived in those areas, you know, and worked for one and a half years in the guerrilla strongholds as an anthropologist. So I ended up, you know, spending a lot of time with the, with the Adivasis, but also learning about the, the revolutionaries who were, in, in fact, in every single household, you know. That, so the Adivasis from every single household had ended up having some kind of connection with, with the revolutionaries. But this doesn't mean that they were Maoists, you know, that they that they were diehard, you know, communist revolutionaries who were against the state necessarily. It it, it was just it was another kind of family <laughs> that was out in the forest. A lot of emotional intimacy developed between the revolutionaries and the Adivasis. I just wanted to say for listeners who have not read your book, it's something that you you get across quite powerfully, right? That it's just like, oh, how you realize like they're in every house, right? In every village and every forest. It's just like, it's that intertwined. Yeah, there was a time, right? Uh, that there has now since that time, 20, you know, that was 10 years ago, been intense state repression. So the entire areas were covered with counterinsurgency operations. Huge, you know, hundreds of thousands of security forces were sent exactly at the time when I started my fieldwork. And then also lots of brutal human rights abuses, villages burned down, women raped, so many people, you know, Adivasis just put in prison as Stan Swami was, you know, uh, unveiling. So it's a very different picture now. So that kind of fluidity did exist for 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 a time, and that's why you know it's a blurred boundary between these revolutionaries and the Adivasis. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to the New Statesman on digital, in print, or both, from as little as one pound a week at newstatesman.com/slash-subscribe. That's just two dollars a week in America. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So with that, we are going to pivot ever so slightly to our listener question. This is a section that we here at the New States and World Review like to call... You Ask Us. The listener question this week is, what should the international response following Swami's death be? 
This is a really great question. I mean, what's happening in India is this silencing, right, of anybody who has the capacity to speak out against what's happening against the regime. So what the Bhima Koregaon case and what Stan Swami's death shows us is all of these, not, not, these are not just poor people who are hidden in the forests of India, but these are intellectuals, human rights activists. Some of them have visited, you know, the US and the UK and been on book tours and so it's these kinds of people that are being silenced and in that circumstance I think that when even uh, a country's uh, intellectuals are being silenced in that circumstance it's really really important for us who are outside to show solidarity to try to do what we can from outside to keep open the debates around democracy, the critique of the regimes, the critique of human rights abuses, the critique of the ways in which these anti-terror laws are being used. I think it's more important than ever for us to be in solidarity with those that are being silenced within the country to, for the, you know, papers like the New Statesman, magazines like the New Statesman to be covering what's happening, for the Washington Post to be breaking these stories about how these computers have been planted. You know, so there's lots that can be done. Um, bar associations, human rights associations, you know, these are all amnesty has been kicked out of India, more or less, you know, it's had to halt its programs. So there's real need for this a lot of work to be done outside of the country right now. So yeah, this is real call for international solidarity. So I have a quick follow-up to this, which is U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is going to India next week, and just in a few days, actually. What would you like him to say on this while he's there? And what do you think he will say? There's several things he could do. Like he could not go. <laughs> he could not go. He could use this as an opportunity to call into question what's happening in, in India, what Father Stan Swami's death custodial murder reveals. He he needs to raise questions about, I think the first thing would be he could ask for is to release all those people who are in Indian prisons under anti-terror laws, at least on bail. Coronavirus is ripping through these prisons. Everywhere around the world, prisoners are being released. So why are these people being held? And it is not just these middle-class intellectuals like the Bhima Koregao, 16 or 15 now after Stan's death, Father Stan's death, but also all of those people like the Adivasis that Stan Swami was fighting, right? He was fighting for, you know, who will never, no, they'll never be able to pay legal fees. No person is ever going to take up their cases. No lawyer is going to take up their case, uh, case you know. And, and so it's really imperative that all of these people at least, you know, are, re are released. I'd love him to raise questions about the Bhima Koregao case, to, to raise questions about the anti-terror laws and raise questions about releasing all these prisoners and of course, that will also mean he has to look back home and what's happening back in the U.S. And uh, yeah, yes, he would. <laughs> make sure there's no hypocrisy and the demands that are being made. So with that, we will, well, first of all, we will remind readers that they can read out this excellent piece, How Father Stan Swami's Custodial Murder is Sparking New Demands for Justice in India on our website, newsseasman.com. We will also link to it in this podcast page. And also that every week, you, the listener, have a chance to be a part of this show by emailing us uh, your question at podcast at newstatesman.co.uk or just tweeting at us. We've, we've become more casual about this. Before we break up, as always, we are going to end by saying what we'll be looking to, what in world news we'll be watching 
in the week ahead. Alpha, since you're a guest, we will start with you. I've really got my eye on the Pegasus revelations, you know, and which I guess is in some ways not very surprising given what we've been talking about. For listeners, this is what I was referring to earlier in this uh, episode. But basically, there were these revelations that an Israeli security company was used by governments all around the world to surveil journalists, activists, etc. It's been shown, I think, that at least 300 people have been targeted in India. And yeah, as you say, it's it's all over the world. So I'm going to be really looking to see how this story unveils itself and what the response is from governments. And I'll, I'll be having my eye on that. And Ido? I will be looking at Lithuania's border with Belarus, where Frontex, which is the European Union's border agency, says it will deploy about 60 guards to monitor the the frontier. And that's happened because there have been over 2,000 migrants who have illegally entered Lithuania from Belarus this year, up from, I think, something like 80 last year. Lithuania accuses Belarus of essentially letting migrants from places like Iraq and the Democratic Republic of Congo cross the border into Lithuania and thus the EU as a way of putting pressure on the EU to lift sanctions. Surprisingly, although these people are coming from Belarus, very few of them, or if any, are actually Belarusians, although many of them would like to leave because they do not like the regime under which they live. It's a relatively small number of people so far, but um, it is a quite sort of interesting story, and it does highlight the dangers and erratic nature of Lukashenko's regime, which borders the EU and has the potential to cause some quite serious headaches for the EU. And what will you be looking forward to, Emily? Well, I was going to say Blinken's visit to India, but I I stole from myself a few minutes ago. So instead, for the second or third, I'm not sure which, week in a row, I will once again say the Olympic Games. By the time this goes out, the opening ceremony will already have taken place. As I said last week, I think less less than any individual event, I'll just be watching how how this goes. It's, I mean, it's wild that it's not that I can't believe it. And indeed, one of my predictions when we did our little New Statesman like 2021 predictions was that there would be the Olympics would go ahead in some capacity. So it's not that this is like not something that I expected. And yet somehow I, I find it hard to believe that with the Delta variant and with no spectators and with Japan's state of emergency that we're still going ahead with this. So I guess what I'm saying is that I will once again be watching what this means for for Japan, for the pandemic and for world politics. I also feel this is a throwback to like the podcast days of yore where every week I said that I would be watching for Biden's VP pick that <laughs> took months to come. The the Olympics are going to be amazing. Like it's just going to be total chaos. They've just fired the the director of the opening ceremony because he made a Holocaust joke something like 20 years ago. Athletes are already testing positive, which means some of them won't be able to compete. I mean, it's going to be chaos. So I'll be watching chaos. Okay, well, with that <laughs> chaotic note, all that is left for us to do is to say thank you, Alpa, so much for joining us today and for and for having this really, for me at least, enlightening, eye-opening discussion. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. If you have enjoyed this episode of World Review, please like, subscribe, leave a review. And as a reminder, spread the word. Tell your friends, your cousins, your pen pals, your uncles, your great uncles. Aunts, great aunts. Yeah, <laughs> aunts, great aunts, exactly. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. Thank you for listening. Until next week. Hold up. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.